You're listening to Inside the Outdoors, presented by People for Bikes and the Outdoor Industry Association, where we discuss the latest market trends in outdoor recreation. And now, here are your hosts, Kelly Davis and Patrick Hogan. Hey, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of Inside the Outdoors. I'm your host, Patrick Hogan. In this episode, Kelly and I build upon last week's discussion about research questions and various types of consumer research studies by exploring the many ways that organizations can find the right audience for studies. What are the strengths and weaknesses of a general population research panel? How can we leverage existing customer databases to grow our brand? When are focus groups or discussion groups the right solution? Let's get into it. Well, let's let's talk about learning from people to generate data, right? So, so last week we talked about the types of studies that we could field to help our brand be more successful, help launch products, help understand our how our brand is viewed, all sorts of questions. Let's talk about how we're going to get folks to tell us what we want them to tell us, where we're going to go find the right people to to provide that sort of information. Yeah, well, as I mentioned before, and I think you you are better at talking about this than I am, you can purchase responses from a number of different panels. I mean, everybody yeah. from YouGov to SurveyMonkey to Qualtrics has a, you know, can actually, they don't have their own panel, they farm it out. But there are a number of different places that you can go and pay, basically Facebook, you can pay for 1500 responses. I mean, the problem is you don't know, you don't know what you're going to get. There's some of those you're going to have to throw away. You're not really sure if they match your criteria. That's just pretty loose. But if you need 1500 fast responses, you know, you're still within your relatively decent margin of error. And to me, that's plus or minus five. Yeah. Right. And, and you can get, you can get sort of quick results on, let's say you need quick feedback on your website. You need quick feedback on our product. Those are good places to get those responses. And once you get them, you can ask them, hey, and it depends on your panel. Some of them restrict this, but you can say, hey, do you want to keep in touch with us? And bing, bang, boom, mm. you know, they can they can opt in. You always want to keep track of what's going on with your own consumer database. And you want to engage yeah. with things like this. It doesn't have to be annoying. I mean, this is what I was talking about. You can use market research for different things. So how do you find them? You already, you already know them. Number one, so you well, can use them and yeah. then go to a panel and find your non-customers. That's yeah, that's the key thing. Yeah, so so the folks in your database are already aligned with you. They already know what you want them to know for the most part. Like they they've already bought into your brand. So then supplementing that database with the folks who are just representing the average American, representing the the average person, whatever your market is. I I say American because we do a lot of studies at the national level, but yeah. The average person in your entire potential database, the the, um, the big uh, denominator. People for Bikes says that we have what we call our grassroots army, and those are the folks who have signed up to receive emails from us to better support bicycling in their area and nationwide. And then we also have surveys that we feel constantly, monthly, quarterly, to general population audiences because we want to keep tabs on participation trends, for instance. We want to know who's writing and what they're writing. Well, we can't email our avid like grassroots army folks because we know that they're writing because they've already engaged with people for bikes and they're signing petitions to uh, increase cycling safety in their area or create infrastructure or whatever it is like they're super plugged in so you can't ask them hey what are you doing because it's not going to look like what the community is doing it's going to look like what a small subset of that community is doing and so that that drives us to need a general population audience, which, like you said, is going to come from typically a, a purchased panel. And, and we do a lot of work with Innovate MR. We do a lot of work with Dynata. 
to find groups that look like the census that that look like they're they're dispersed in the four geographic regions they're balanced on sex on household income all these different variables so that it's as as representative as it can be yeah i mean it's nice because you can you can start to define your variables and get really close to to what your target audience looks like in that data and it helps you understand how you define your target audience yeah just the act of going through that is just helpful in in terms of getting everybody on the same page with a vision of who your your prime customer is yeah the other the the third type of online panel that i can think of at least would be aggregators you ever worked with survey aggregators yeah i've done that do meta i love it yeah about meta-analysis so you know you're basically looking for hundreds of surveys that are basically asking the same thing yeah are we doing the same that meta and so you can so you can identify patterns in the data even if comparability is a minor issue I've, i haven't worked with the survey aggregator I, i've done some of that mm, um, this is not what i'm talking about but this is interesting keep going um so basically it's meta-analysis is what i'm talking about so you, what you're doing is you're saying you know what is the seminal? What is the seminal research in this category? What what is it that I don't know? For instance, I run into this a lot with workforce. Like we're doing a, a lot of work with say ORR in workforce study for outdoor, and I don't I don't know that I don't know what I don't know in workforce. So you know there there are a lot of times when I will look at various surveys about things like compensation and benefits or diversity in the workforce, or any of the studies that have been done in the outdoor workforce to determine um, different trends at different times. I mean, and the latest one that I'm yeah. aware of is OSU's study on workforce diversity in outdoor. And I mean, it's fascinating stuff because it gives you a wider view of all the information available to date um, in, in that category and gives you an idea of what the, the seminal information is. So the, the, original, the original ideas in that category. Um, which, I mean, if, when you start digging into that, when you start really digging into the heuristics of your own industry, things get super interesting. You learn yeah. that you maybe didn't know um, about, about how things started, how things are going, and how people perceive different things in outdoor, including outdoor archetypes. Yeah. Which we've talked about. Which we've talked about. We can keep talking about it, though. Survey aggregator, as I understood the term, would be I... I purchase for pennies on the dollar responses to my survey from someone who's going out to multiple panels. It, it's not just one panel, but multiple panels to find my responses. And, um, and it's greater volume, lower cost, but it's, it's less and less representative uh, when compared to like the group that's balanced against the census on those demographic variables. It's a lot more sort of like random scattershot um, shooting that, that online survey out to folks. But if if volume is needed and we're not so much concerned about being representative, then that's another solution. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I was, uh, you know, I, again, I was thinking meta analysis, and I got all excited about aggregating. I dig <laughs> it. You're good. But, yeah, that's a, that is a that is kind of a nice alternative if your budget's super super tight. I mean, yeah. one of the things that one of the one of the methods that that we use is with civic science. And I mean, they're going out to, they're go using syndicated and, and sort of major media to do single question surveys out to, you know, millions and millions and millions of people. And that is kind of survey. That's, they're kind of a survey aggregator, but you know, they're not, they're not dispersing across multiple panels. They're, they're dispersing across multiple media. 
right? So yeah. they show up in the Wall Street Journal and the US and USA Today and Time Magazine. It's not quite the same. No, I, they're in a league of their own because their their methodology is super unique. And and for like a super detailed rundown, we did a, two episodes with civic science in June of this year, uh, which I thought were fascinating. Yeah. But Casey's such a smart guy that it's hard not to be fascinated when you talk to him. But yeah. it's what, what civic science is, is doing is unique and pretty amazing. And I mean, I, I, I'll tell you as a researcher, nothing makes me happier than having an N over 30,000. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, that's, that's one of the, one of the issues that you're going to run into. And you touched on it earlier is, you know, you've got to, you've got to pay attention to your response. You have to have critical mass. And if you're going to segment within your survey, you've got to get critical mass at your segments to project. Otherwise yeah. you end up, you know, arrested by the law of small numbers and thrown into, thrown into misleading jail. It's bad. It, <laughs> yes. Right. You can end up with super spurious results that don't make sense. But, you know, could you could reliably say, well, data is the data. You can't do that. I mean, you've got to, You've got to be mathematically responsible when you do this. Yeah. And you, you can't accept um, results that are that are substandard in terms of response rate and critical mass of response. That's all. Get to yeah. plus or minus five and, and, and I'll relax. But until then. I'll I'll put a link in the episode description so that you can see like, okay, well, if this segment's really only got 70 people in it and I'm measuring that whatever 50% did this, and then you can see how wide that confidence interval is. And then all of a sudden you're taken aback by the fact that like, oh, wow, it's definitely not 50%. It's somewhere between 34 and 66 or whatever. I, I wish I could do the math in my head quick enough, but um, it's wide. And you're like, oh, I do need a lot more people in order to make um an educated decision here yeah like an accurate you know you want an accurate direction at least you're never going to be 100 percent accurate but 95 percent confidence interval means a lot everything's yeah. on a distribution and by the way um 95 confidence interval refers to the idea that if you've got a margin of error plus or minus three what that means at a 95 percent confidence interval. Mm -hmm. What that means is that if you did the survey with an analogous group of people a hundred more times, that 95%, 95 of them would come back within, you know, plus or minus 3% of the original results on every question, every question, but everybody had to answer every question, right? Um, so it's, I mean, it's important. I, sometimes, you know, when we talk about things like margin, margins of error and confidence intervals, sometimes I see people just go, no. <laughs> well, your explanation just then was perfect. That was so great. I've never heard it said that way, but but yeah, that's um, that's so easy to understand. Yeah, it's and so, but this is important. I was just doing this this morning to try and explain why you shouldn't you shouldn't put results out there if you don't have critical mm -hmm. mass. Because I was working with, a, I'm looking at, I use the American Research Group Incorporated's margin of error calculator. Always yeah. have, it's always been on my home screen, man. <laughs> I just can't help it. Because it asks you, it, it, you get your population size, so you're in, right? And then you get your sample size and it calculates your margin of error for you. And in this study, I had a, a plus or minus 12.4% margin of error, which means that in the center of that distribution is just a big gray mark, like they kind of might be in here. I mean, yeah, somewhere in there. It's sort of the strike zone, you know. It's like this, yeah. is, this is where this is where we think most people are, but yeah. there's, there, it, we don't have really enough to understand if this is just bullshit. 
<laughs> we'll, yeah. we'll link that one uh, in the episode description. I use a different one, but this seems uh, more official. I like it. I mean, I like it because I've been using it. This is like, this is the one status quo I'm going to just white knuckle grip until the end. I, mean, <laughs> I don't care if somebody does something better or something prettier. I'm using this, yeah. man. I got to have one thing. It's going to be this one thing. <laughs> so, so confidence intervals. Let's talk about how confidence intervals work their way into a conversation um, using another like information gathering method, like focus groups. I, I've run a number of focus groups, right? Focus groups between eight people, 12 people. I don't think I've ever gone more than like 13, 12, Thank 13 God. people. That's kind of, that's pretty big, but um, you're gonna have to give them a lot of food, so at least half of them shut up, right? It's um, hard to get information out of twelve people for like two two and a half hours of the break in between or something, you know. Like, but what we're doing is describing different ways to gather this information, and none of them are perfect. There are all these imperfect methods. That's we're we're social scientists, and it's a social science, right? Um, it's not it's not an exact science. Um. I, I've seen folks get into trouble with focus groups because one person will say one thing and, and that one person fits into a demographic profile that looks like this. And then all of a sudden the client will assume that everyone in that demographic profile shares that view because the one person that fit into that profile in a focus group said something offhand that, that was like just taken and run with, you know? Yeah, exactly. uh, focus groups are so valuable for getting that qualitative mushy information and, and like being able to dig and pry a little bit almost. Uh, maybe pry sounds bad, but but to really dig into like, oh, that's so interesting. Um, I hadn't thought about it that way. Can you tell me more about why you view this brand this way or why you prioritize this product attribute in, in this product backpack to go back to last week's metaphor? But they can lead you down a dangerous path of of really over amplifying little bits of information that come out of one, maybe two people. I agree. And I'm going to reiterate what I said at the beginning of last week's podcast, which is this is why you need research professionals around because we yes. understand the dangers of falling into a pit of the law of small numbers and getting spurious results that you, you, you think are basically, you know, gospel. That's what I was talking about when I said, sometimes this affects even um, the perception of archetypes. You can change an archetype, with something as, as simple and kind of goofy as that. Like you're yeah. just, and you've got one person that's dominating the conversation. And you know, then you get then you get groupthink and people want to agree with that person because they're the loudest yeah. person. And all of a sudden you end up with, you know, with the next velvet jacket. And you're like, what <laughs> the coolest thing ever. That's that's the danger of it. And you need research specialists around that can that can recognize, hey, don't fall into this pit. Maybe we yeah. want to strangulate this. Let's look at what at what the data says, and let's go out and look at retail trends and some participation trends and some other information about consumer behavior and consumer segmentation to find out, you know, if we think this is real. And God forbid you only do one focus group or one little discussion. <laughs> you need to do at least at least five of them. On yeah. Spread out across the U.S. or all right, I keep going back to the national level, but spread out across the area of interest for whatever the study is. Exactly, um, and you need yeah. to translate that with as much data as you can get your hands on. Yes. and that's that's why you need people like like Patrick and I because yeah, we know how to do that. We know what the pitfalls are. We can keep you from making a mistake based on on misleading or spurious data. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, God, I've done this a lot. 
especially it's getting more and more popular. I think this, the discussion group, yeah, like focus groups used to be really rigid, which I, you know, I'm still stuck on don't call it a focus group because a focus group used to be this rigid methodology where you had to have an independent facilitator, a specific number of people, there had to be a specific yeah. process and, and even better, there had to be no exceptions, uh, uh, one of those two-way mirrors that you know, <laughs> yeah, I've sat behind that one or two times. People can lurk. Yeah. The company president can lurk behind there and get all emotional when someone says something bad about his favorite product. Discussion <laughs> groups are a little looser. Right? Yeah, you can have an interview instrument for that. You can, you know, you can even do interviews. So you can do three people. You can have ten people. You can just do one people, one person at it, one people. Yeah, one people one at a time. You can do one person at a time and you can do, instead of doing three focus groups, you can do 12 interviews or you can mm. do, you know, 12 interviews and three focus groups and measure the variance between. Ooh, I like that. Big on triangulation. Yeah. Yeah. I like, They're all I mean, perfect methods. All, all of the great information in this world can be found in the variances. All of it. We should put that on a coffee mug. On the other side, we could put N equals one. N equals one. N equals one. That's good. I think create a series of coffee mugs with like ridiculous things that I that I tend to say to people like Patrick. One of these days, we'll link our our inside the outdoors podcast store, our our merch link in the episode description. I mean, I should be selling. I should be selling the biased worksheet. Think of the tens of dollars we could make. Oh my god, I was thinking cents. <laughs> uh, that's it's too funny figures, dude yeah. let's let's um i'm gonna let you take us out on one last area of interest and that would be like a gear lab testing talk about that for a minute well at the at the most interesting level of qualitative research to me so mm -hmm. we talk about consumer research all the time and surveys fun you know, discussion groups are more fun. Interviews are more fun. But the yeah, most yeah. fun is when you can get your consumers' hands on the product and measure and find all kinds of ways to measure their reactions, allow them to use it, give them environments to use it, give them environments to talk to each other about mm -hmm. what they're doing and, and about the equipment, what they think. Oh my God, that is the holy grail of yeah. data. You know, it's not it's not perfect as as none of this is. I mean, this is why. Life is basically lived on a distribution of and probabilities of, of accuracy of information. We, that's why we pay attention to process. If we keep our processes clean, then we tend to have clean data and we tend to have valid insights at the end of that. But we've got to be able to, as researchers, to defend that from yeah. day one through the process and discuss how we how we managed our bias. And, you know, what we did to make sure that our questions weren't loaded or double barreled or, or you know, we're not using the halo effect. Like, hey, Alex, mm. an old cool guy. Do you want to be like him? I mean, you know, yep. Alex Holt says that this carabiner is the best. What do you think? Yeah, that's, 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 I'm just going to end with a plug for us as always. man. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Yeah. What, what are our pillars? Like know your customer. You know, reduce cost, maximize revenue to maximize profit, and call Kelly and Patrick. That's right, Thank because you. not only are we intelligent, we're entertaining. So give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. Have be entertained and enlightened all at the same time.
Thanks for listening to Inside the Outdoors, presented by People for Bikes and the Outdoor Industry Association. We'll see you next time.